Hey everybody, welcome to All Have Another Podcast with Lindsay Hine. I'm your host, Lindsay. Thank you so much for being here today. Today, you are listening to episode 121, and I'm talking with Becky Wade. Becky is an elite marathon runner. She has a really cool story back in 2012, 2012 to 2013. She traveled around the world to 22 different countries and learned about running cultures all over the world. She wrote a book about it called Run the World, which I just finished. You guys all go pick it up because it is our June book club choice for the podcast. And it is so good. I learned so much in the book. And one thing I took from the book was that there's no one way to do training. There's no one way that's right or one way that's wrong. And you can learn so much from other people. And in this interview, Becky talks about that a lot. Becky ran her first marathon in 2013 at CIM in a time of two hours and 30 minutes to win that race. And she is now chasing down the goal to break 230 and not only break 230, but to crush it. I'm so excited to see Becky's marathoning career take off and see what she has in store. She's really young, you guys. So she's still got a lot of years of training ahead of her. She's also getting married this year. So congratulations, Becky, and happy wedding planning. All right, so I have some other really exciting news on the book club front. So we're picking Becky's book, Run the World, for our June book club choice. So make sure you go grab that. I will put the link to it in the show notes. But in May, we read Dina Castor's book, Let Your Mind Run. And Dina has been on the show twice. Make sure you go back and listen to her episodes if you haven't already listened to them. But Dina has agreed to join us in my Facebook group this coming Thursday, May 31st at 4.30 p.m. Eastern Time. That's 4.30 p.m. Eastern Time. So join myself and Dina. We're going to have a live interview slash Q&A. So you guys can join the conversation and just chime in in the comments below the video and ask whatever question you want to the one and only Dina Castor. Link to join the Facebook group is in my show notes at lindsayhine.com, but you can also just go to Facebook and search for it. I'll have another podcast with Lindsay Hine group. You guys can find me over on Instagram, lindsayhine626 and Twitter at lindsayhine. You can also find Becky on Instagram, Becky S. Wade. All right, and if you're looking for more content from me, you can find that over on my Patreon page, patreon.com slash lindsayhine. That is a easy way for you to support the show, my work behind it, the production, the editing, the researching, the interviewing, all that goes into putting this show together. Um, by supporting the show over there, you can get bonus content where I release bonus episodes. All right, you guys, I appreciate you so much. Thank you for being here. And I really hope you enjoy and walk away inspired by this conversation with Becky Wade. Today on the podcast, we have Becky Wade on the show, one of the most requested guests I've had. And Becky, we've, I've tried to do this before and we're finally getting to it. Yeah, I'm happy to be here. So thanks for persisting. (laughs) Welcome, welcome. So I just finished your book, Run the World. Yep, yep. Well done. I know you were juggling a lot. So (laughs) I have been wanting to read it for a very long time. And I have to tell you, it was such an easy read. You are a very good storyteller. Thank you. I I tried. Um, yeah, I went to it without really training in writing. So I think it's a little bit more of a natural voice than like a 
polished author, which is up some people's alleys and not up others. Yeah. Well, let's give everybody a quick introduction of Becky. So Becky is a marathon runner. She ran the steeple and 10K in college at Rice University. She debuted the marathon in two hours and 30 minutes to win CIM in 2013. And she also traveled the world for an entire year between 2012 and 2013. So, so much to talk about with Becky today. I'm just so excited that you are here and I have so many questions about all your experiences. Awesome. Well, bring them on. I'm glad to be here. (laughs) So let's tell everybody first about uh, your love for running and where it came from and how all that started. So I am one of four siblings. There's two sets of twins and I'm part of the younger set. We're just one grade apart. And um, I grew up just really active, like, you know, playing every sport and spending all my time running around the yard in the neighborhood with my siblings and actually went on my first run with my dad when probably we were like seven or eight or something. And um, he is a college football player turned marathon runner when his knees are cooperating. And um, so it, it was just kind of a treat when I was young to get to um, have some special time with my family members and feel a little bit, you know, more independent roaming around on the roads and we do a few fun runs together. Um, but it didn't really get serious for me until I'd say the second half of my high school running career. I was really, um, I thought I was a sprinter and a hurdler for all of middle school and most of high school. And, um, my hurdles coach actually passed away my junior year. And at that point, the other coaches were like, okay, yeah, you're actually not a hurdler. You know, you're fine, but like you're, this is not probably what you're meant to be doing or where your potential lies. So I moved up to the mile and the two mile towards the end of high school. Wasn't, wasn't great or anything, but fortunately the coach Jim Bevan at Rice saw some potential in me and um, I got to go to Rice on a scholarship and just kept increasing in distance from there. Well, First of all, you're a set. You're part of two sets of twins. That's insane for your parents. Yeah, I know. I know. It's now that my my friends are starting to have kids, <laughs> what they're going through. Like, I honestly don't understand how they did it. But um, yeah, my siblings are awesome. We're both we're both sets are boy girl boy girl. So it's cool. There's not like too much competition or anything like that. But they're great. They're Three of my best friends for sure. And you're only 18 months apart, right? Yeah. 20, that, actually 20. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. My younger two kids are 21 months apart and then I have another one coming and they're only going to be 22 months apart. And the difference between oh. that, like my, and my oldest, so I'm going to have four kids. My oldest, there's a two and a half year gap, but man, oh, when, wow. yeah. When you get under one year and I mean, under two years in that age gap, it's just the insanity is taken up a notch and I can't imagine doing it with two under two and then bringing in two more. Nor can I, but honestly, like you're, what you're doing is incredible too. So wow. I, I, I admire all moms a lot. 
it is a wild thing, especially in those younger years. And I know that we'll all look back and say, oh my gosh, I miss this and I miss that. But yeah, it is definitely a crazy <laughs> chaotic time for sure. Um, yeah. So after Rice, this is when the story gets interesting. You applied for the Thomas J. Watson Fellowship and now tell everybody what that is. So the Thomas J. Watson Fellowship is a life-changing opportunity that um, I'm so fortunate to have gotten. It is offered every year to 40 graduating seniors from different universities in the U.S. Um, and everyone who applies for this fellowship basically designs a dream year that they will um, that they'll carry out all by themselves for 12 months in different places all over the world and everyone chooses some kind of theme or major passion to kind of be the thread of the whole trip. And mine naturally was long distance running and my slant was long distance running cultures. Um, I studied psychology and sociology and, and history in college. And so I really just wanted to see the way that people structure their lives around running all over the world and, um, you know, dive into different running communities, learn about training styles, get to know athletes and coaches. And, um, so my proposal was to go to five countries over the course of the year and just really infiltrate the running communities. Um, and once I got the fellowship, the really cool thing about it is that there's a lot of flexibility with what you can do. Um, so you can stray from your proposal to some degree, as long as you, really stick with the heart of your proposal. Um, and I ended up going instead of five countries, I went to 22, got a little carried away, <laughs> kept, kept meeting friends. And anytime someone was like, Oh, um, you know, like I met this man, Brian in, in Ethiopia. And he, and he was like, you know, I, I live in Sweden most of the year. If you ever find yourself there, like come stay with me. And every time someone did that, I was like, okay, you said it. I'm, I'm that's dangerous. Cause I'm actually coming. Uh, so yeah, I got, got a little out of control, but in a good way. And it was, yeah, that's the substance of my book and has really, um, has really been a part of me ever since. And kind of the way I see the world and the way I train and race. So 40 people get accepted. Do, how competitive is it? How many people apply for it? I'm not actually sure how many people apply. It's competitive. I mean, yeah, it's it's really competitive. But one thing I love about it is that it's not the the people who get it are not chosen based on like GPA mm -hmm. or resume. You know, those are factors. But what really they were looking for were people who are so dedicated to their craft, whether it's astronomy, meditation, teaching, unicycling or running in my case. So, um, I think I was able to prove throughout the whole application process that, you know, this is something that like kind of is, is the skeleton of my whole existence. And, um, you know, it's something that to some extent I will be doing until I no longer can. And so, um, I can't tell you exactly how competitive, but it sounds like it was a pretty intense application process though. Like you really had to put a lot into it. Oh yeah. I, I, I was applying during my uh, my senior year. I guess I started like a year out and I'm 
pretty positive I spent more time on the application process than any single course that semester. Don't tell any of my teachers, but <laughs> but there were a few rounds and like it, you know, tons of revisions and planning potential itineraries. None, of course, which actually happened that way, even at all. But that that was the idea. So. 22 countries, 3,504 miles from August 2012 to August 2013. Uh, we can't, obviously, we don't have time to walk through every single country, um, mm-hmm. but give everybody the rundown of the countries you go over in the book. Yeah, so in the book, I focused on the nine countries I spent the most significant time in, and that was England, Ireland, Switzerland, Ethiopia, Australia, New Zealand, Japan, Sweden, and Finland. Okay. I felt like as I was reading the book, and for everybody listening, go go pick up the book and read it because it's a really fun and fascinating read. It's a cool look into other running cultures. And the fact that you at such a young age, you're this tiny little person and you just threw yourself into all these different places. I'm just, I'm inspired that you did that. I think that, um, I would have been too scared to travel on my own like that. And so I think that you did something really brave there. Um, yeah. Uh, It was so good for me. I mean, I think a lot of distance runners and I totally fall into this category are so regimented and like live such predictable, stable, unspontaneous, the, you know, like not, not really living in the moment lives. And mm-hmm. um, that just kind of forced me to really throw my planner out the window and kind of go with the flow for the first time in a very big way. And, um, I'm very grateful. I, I got the opportunity, but also was forced to do that. Were you, have you grown up being a, in, like really independent person because I mean it really does take a certain kind of person to just say heck I'm gonna go do this I'm not gonna see my family for a year I'm not gonna go back to the states for a year and I'm gonna travel and just meet people I mean you guys she literally just had to find people in every country just email random people and connect with people all on her own there wasn't a magic person in the middle saying, Hey, this is where you have to go when you get to this country. You kind of, you really had to map this out. Yeah. Yeah. You, you explained it well. And I kind of, I think people look past that fact a lot. Cause they're like, Oh my gosh, we, you traveled for a year on someone else's budget, someone else's dime. But, um, really it was like, I got a lump sum of money and it wasn't a ton. I couldn't like live extravagantly, but they were like here now go, find out, like, go, go learn, go explore. And it's pretty daunting because you can go anywhere. You can, I mean, a a bunch of people stay in apartments or hostels or whatnot. Um, But I, after my first country, I kind of kept hooking up with runners who would um, invite me to, like, train with their groups and stay with their families and stuff like that. And so, um, I ended up basically doing homestays the whole entire rest of the year. And that was a really huge part of my trip, just getting to live the way that my hosts were living and eat the way they were eating and train when they trained, where they trained and stuff like that. So, um, yeah, I to go back to your question, I always have been pretty independent. Um, I'd say very independent, actually, but 
this was a whole new level and through like, even though I'm independent, I've also always been super close to my family. And so that was definitely one of the, the hardest parts was being away from them. I think what you're saying is so key because had you stayed in hostels and hotels or whatever apartments or, you know, a, obviously you would have ripped through the budget real quick, but B, um, you would have, you know, met up with these running groups, but then you would have gone home at night and, you know, read a book and been alone and been by yourself. But you, you literally lived with these people in all these different countries. And so you didn't just get to know the culture when you were out for a run with them for two hours a day, you like lived and breathed it. Yeah, exactly. And that was, that was huge. My experience would have been so different. And I think I would have been so, so much more limited in what I would have taken away from each place that I went to. So, I mean, I owe so much to the people, you know, well, what I did was hard, but also, can you imagine getting an email from someone from another <laughs> country saying, Hey, I'm a runner. I really want to see the way that you live and train. Do you or anyone you know have like a spare room or would you let me come meet up with you to train? And like every single time I went somewhere, I eventually found people like that were not only willing, but very happy to let me do these things and follow them around. So I think that says so much about the running community all over the world. Yeah, I actually thought about that a lot when I was reading the book, because I was thinking, what would her experience have been like if she was someone not from the United States and coming to the United States? And I was thinking, where would she have landed? Would you have gone to Eugene? You know, would you have gone to just like the pinnacle of the running community? Where do you think you would have gone if this, if the United States would have been on your list and you weren't from here? I, I probably would have wanted to go. I think, um, there's a bunch of popular like altitude training spots that would have been cool. Like Mammoth, Flagstaff, Boulder, where I am. Um, let's see, definitely like Eugene, Portland, probably Boston. Cause there's a pretty mm. strong culture there. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think people would have I think that you would have found good people here too, right? Yeah, yeah, for sure. And so much of it was like people, you know, I'd find one host who was awesome and who I got along really well with and they'd connect me to their friend in another part of the country or even like in another country. And it just kept happening that way. And and it was nice to have a little network because I felt like pretty safe. And yeah, like I trust these people once I had a couple people verify, you know, like that they're friends and stuff like that. That you weren't going to stay with some random creeper in Australia or New Zealand. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. I mean, that that part of staying with strangers who I knew very little about was a little concerning to my mom, especially. Sure. But actually, like, it worked out really well. Okay. So what of all, all the countries that you visited, um, like we mentioned, she goes over nine countries in the book, but then there's 22 that she actually visited. What is the broadest biggest common theme you saw throughout all the cultures with running hmm I think one theme that kept showing up again and again is that runners don't have a lot of ego are very inclusive and um pretty pretty like down-to-earth people you know it's not a super glamorous sport it's something that anyone can do. You don't have to have equipment. You don't have to have a background in the sport. You don't have to have a coach. You don't have to have like a 
playing field or anything like that. Like you can do it anywhere. And it's such a nice way to connect with people where you are that, um, that yeah, I'd say inclusive and generous and also consumed by consumed by the activity. That was something I saw again and again. I think it's easy to get hooked and really build your life around it. And so you built a ton of friendships on this journey, you know, with each country you have like, you know, in the book, she has little stories of the different friendships and the different ways she connected with people. And I felt like as a reader following the story uh, that your friendship with the Yaya girls in Ethiopia really stood out to me. Mm, So what was so special about that group? Well, um, my time in Ethiopia was just really amazing. It was, uh, everyone always asked me, what was your favorite country? And I can't really say that because I had such a good time and such different experiences everywhere. But Ethiopia just like totally captured my heart and my soul when I was there. And the Yaya girls, um, I mean, it's it's funny because we didn't really share much of a language. I was, you know, kind of helping teach them a little bit of English and trying to pick up some words in Amharic. But even by the end of my two months, like we shared, you know, a short list of words, but we spent a lot of time running together and uh, eating together and just spending time together. And um, I just, I don't know what it was about my time there, but I just felt like, I got to know them on a deep level without communicating with words, which I think is really special. And I I just felt like, I mean, all of them were from very impoverished backgrounds and they were so generous. Like a couple of them literally gave me shirts off their back when I was leaving because they wanted me to take a little piece of Ethiopia. And one of them refused to let me ever pay for my own mini bus rides, even though when she would pay for me to get down to audit, like down to kind of downtown area from where we were staying, it was like, I don't know, at least half a day's work for her to go there and back to pay for both of us. And it was just such a raw, um, beautiful culture to me. And I have to have a, I'll tell you a quick little follow-up story to the Aya girls. So I went back to Ethiopia last year and it was, let's see, 12, it was, four or five years, I think it was, let's see, I think it was four years after I'd been. And I knew that the Yaya Girls program had been discontinued and was really sad about it, didn't really have a way to keep in touch with any of them. Not that we could have exchanged letters because, first of all, they don't (laughs) English, I don't write in Amharic, and there's not a reliable postal system. But, you know, I just kind of accepted that, like, I probably would never see them again. One day in the forest... I was on a long run and there was a big group of runners there and they were all leaving, heading to this big bus to go back into town. And out of the corner of my eye, I saw this silhouette that I recognized. Oh, and so I yelled, I was like, Gerard too. And she turned around and came sprinting up. <gasps> we had this huge embrace, both crying. Oh. We could, I mean, we could honestly like not exchange words. We couldn't, <laughs> it was awesome. I just, was my fear was that she wouldn't remember me or that I would just never have the opportunity to see her again. And we only saw each other that one time, but it was one of the coolest moments of my life. She would definitely remember you. 
the <laughs> the little the little white girl that just showed up and ran with yeah. her for eight weeks. Weren't you there for eight weeks? I was, yeah. But I mean, you know, it had been a few years and I didn't yeah. know like she had a huge impact on me and I'm certain my impact was not as big on her, but it was cool that that like that wasn't lost, you know. Well, she was the one that you'll have to tell everybody the story that she had a bad run one day and she said it was the devil or something. Tell everybody about that. Yeah. yeah so she was doing this hill workout with the other girls and um, she was really struggling. She was normally one of the stronger on the hills and really struggling. Couldn't keep up with other girls. Didn't finish the workout. And um, I basically came to understand with the help of another girl who was helping kind of translate that she said the devil was in her and that was why she was struggling. Um, and that, that was a pretty interesting glimpse. That was early on into my visit there, but that was a pretty interesting glimpse into a very different approach to the sport because they didn't think anything of it. But to me, I was like, wait, what? Like, <laughs> this is not the concept I'm remotely familiar with, but um, to them, it was like pretty normal. And I, I heard comments like that a couple of times while I was there. And it always took me a little bit by surprise that that was like legitimately something that, you know, they, they attributed to a bad run and not that, you know, that it, it wouldn't have been the case, but, um, just not something you would hear in the U S. Well, yeah. And you talk about that. I think in Ethiopia is the country that, you talk about how strongly people's faith and spirituality is woven into their running. Totally. Yeah. Like you don't really see runners training on Sunday. That's when they have, when they go to church, most of them Ethiopian Orthodox church, but you'll hear like the, um, the loudspeakers come on from the churches, which are kind of all over starting at like three or 4am on Sundays. And, it's a pretty universal day off in the country. And yeah, you'll see people, I mean, a lot of them wear and race in the Ethiopian Orthodox crosses and you'll see them praying before and after workouts. And um, I think there's a lot of trust there for at least the religious runners that, that um, kind of the outcome of a, workout or a race is as it's supposed to be. And that if it didn't happen today, that, you know, the higher power will help them happen, help, help them make it happen in due time. Um, so that was a pretty cool perspective to see as well. Did you go to any like cool church services that people were just kind of like, I don't know, I picture the, the church services being pretty intense over there. Did you go to anything like that? Yeah, so I spent my last like 10 days, not not my very last, but at, at the end of my trip, 10 days traveling a little bit around northern Ethiopia and went to this one city called Lalibela. You should definitely look it up, L-A-L-I-B-E-L-A. And they have all these underground stone churches and it's kind of like the Mecca for the Ethiopian Orthodox religion and um, believers will take pilgrimages there. Um, often like when I was there, I saw tons of elderly people barefoot who had walked from their villages wherever in Ethiopia, like sometimes for days to get there. Um, and it's, it's just, it's amazing. And I, I got to go into a church during one of the services there and 
it was pretty cool. Like I obviously couldn't understand anything, but it was full of incense and chanting and um, pretty haunting hymns that they were singing. And it was, yeah, it was really memorable and really different from my Catholic upbringing. Okay. So you grew up Catholic. I was going to say, did you feel, did you feel like a spiritual connection, even though you didn't know exactly what they were saying? I did a little bit. I mean, I didn't, I didn't grow up going to Latin masses, but I've been to them before. So to me, it was a little bit, a bit like that. Like you can kind of make what you want out of the, the peace and the quiet. And, um, it was, yeah, it was a, it was a cool, different spiritual experience. Okay. So I'm sure that this is the question you get asked a lot. And I think you said someone, I think you mentioned that people ask you this a lot, but if you had to only go to one of the places you visited and spend the entire year there, which, which place would you choose? Well, to just go to one over the course of a year, I guess that's different. I mean, I I think it's pretty telling that given the opportunity to, to travel last year, I chose to go back to Ethiopia rather than go somewhere new or go anywhere else. Um, cause I think I, I just really, that country just for whatever reason totally captured me and, um, I fell in love with it, but for a whole year, Hmm. I mean, there are a lot of places I went that I would not mind living in if only mm. I could bring, like my family over, but Melbourne was awesome. Um, Switzerland, I definitely do that, but you know, I I'll, I'll stick with Ethiopia. I okay. think that's still. I, that's still what I do. Yeah. I had a sneaking suspicion that you would not choose Japan. So <laughs> yeah, I, I hope I didn't misrepresent my time there. No, it actually, you did it. Yeah. It, it actually was an awesome part of my trip. It, it really wasn't. It's such a cool place and somewhere that I would recommend anyone going, especially just to like tour around and stuff. But as far as running goes, I found it hard to train I, I just found it hard to train and navigate in Tokyo. Yeah. Um, but when I went out, well, you know, when, when I found the good, the better spots to train became a lot easier. It's just not someplace that you can just like pop out the door and go run through the neighborhood and find a route or whatever. Cause you won't. <laughs> um, but if you know where to go and you're willing to make a little trek to get there, then it's good. And, um, when I got out to some of the like smaller areas, like when I went to Kyoto, not that it's a small city, but compared to Tokyo, it, it was a lot more manageable for running and had an awesome river path. And so given the opportunity, I think I would have wanted to see more kind of rural mountainous regions of Japan. Yeah. And maybe someday I will. Yeah. I mean, Tokyo would just be really difficult. I mean, in the way you explain how runners, so runners are like, traffic so you don't run against the cars you have to stop at stop signs like cars and things like that if you're trying to go run like 15 miles that's gonna be real difficult to do downtown Tokyo yeah it just doesn't really work and that's why you don't really see people you just don't see people running on the sidewalks because it it just doesn't work I mean I tried for a, a week or something just doing that but it just doesn't really work you have to go find somewhere that you can actually do like loops around a park or run around the Imperial Palace or something like that. Um, I, th- I thought it was interesting because you mentioned Yuki in the book and 
obviously Yuki's this like world sensation now because he just won Boston, but you know, you wrote this book way before then and he's like a celebrity in Tokyo, you know, cause he's the citizen runner. So yeah, you, you knew about him way before the rest of us did. Yeah. I mean, he's, he's been, he's, I, I guess he just had like a huge international breakthrough, but for quite some time, he's been like super prominent in the Japanese running scene. And, um, not so much for like beating the world, but for yeah. running often, not having a corporate sponsorship for putting together these, like just a crazy string of really solid performances one after the other. And, having a full-time job. So yeah, it's awesome to see what, what he's been doing. He's phenomenal. Well, one of the themes of the book that you talk about a lot is um, just like the flexibility and, you know, a lot of people in these other cultures, we see elite American runners a lot of times. That's their sole job. That's what they dedicate all of their time to. And that's fine. And that's great. But what you kind of witnessed in all these other cultures is the flexibility and people working other jobs and still excelling and doing really good, great things. So did you, what did you take from that? I mean, you nailed it. I think one of, one of the biggest lessons from the whole year was that there are so many different ways to be a great runner and to be serious about running. Um, For some people it's, kind of a all in hundred percent all the time kind of thing. And that works, but I'd say for the vast majority of people, not only is that not really reality, but it's also not the way that people thrive. And I'm, I'm one of those people, like I'm my best self in every area when I have a few things going on. And yes, my tendency is probably to pick up a few more than I need to be doing, but I, yeah, I just saw so many different approaches to the sport and so many different training styles and ways of, um, you know, building a schedule and racing and just everything that it kind of gave me confidence that I don't have to be questioning if I'm doing everything hundred percent right. Cause there's really not a right way. And I think as long as you're enjoying it and, you know, learning about yourself and adjusting things as you figure out what works and what doesn't and borrowing ideas from people who are doing well, I think, I think that's really the way to go far and have a long career in the sport. Well, and you learned to not be so attached to your watch and so attached that in fact, when you came back and ran CIM, you didn't even wear a watch, did you? So in CIM, I wore one, but I wasn't really paying attention to it. My instructions were just to like kind of get in a good rhythm and go with it. And so I wasn't really paying attention. But but when I ran this year, the Houston half marathon, which was the race that qualified me for the world half marathon championships, I didn't even have a watch on. So that was that that was definitely something that um, was an idea borrowed for my trip. And my coach, who's who was my coach then and still is my coach, Jim Bevan, um, he loves when I just kind of throw the clock out the window and in workout sometimes he would have me just give give him my watch and he'd tell me just run like run hard if I tell you to pick it up run a little bit harder but like your body is way smarter than you think it is 
Hey everybody, I want to jump in real quick and thank two of our sponsors who helped make this show possible. The first is Four Sigmatic. Four Sigmatic makes drinking mushroom coffees and elixirs delicious and easy to do. So Four Sigmatic has instant ground coffee and mushroom pods. Each serving contains 500 milligrams of mushrooms organically grown, dual extracted, and third-party tested. They have all kinds of different choices that help you with different functions in your brain and your body. One of my favorites right now is the Lion's Mane Elixir, which supports focus, creativity, memory, concentration, and brain health. Drink at work, to study, or whenever your brain needs an energizing hug. I think we could all use that around 2 p.m. every day. Am I right? They also have new latte mixes, which I've been loving. I enjoy the golden latte mix and the chai latte mushroom mix. These are sweet and creamy non-dairy mushroom lattes, and they use only one gram of coconut palm sugar per serving. So it's not super sweet and crazy, but it's still very delicious. Anybody interested in trying out Four Sigmatic, just go to foursigmatic.com slash another and use the promo code ANOTHER to get 15% off your order. And the other sponsor I want to thank is my friends at Lily Trotters. I love, love, love their compression socks. This is a high-performance compression sock for women with really cute designs. They are made marathon strong and designer inspired. You get fit, comfort, and style, whether you're running a marathon or a mile. These socks are made in the USA and they're perfect for the runner, traveler, or expectant mom. So go to lilytrotters.com and use the code ANOTHER at checkout to get 25% off your order. Thanks for Sigmatic and thanks Lily Trotters for supporting this episode of the podcast. I can imagine, I mean, when you described running through all those trails in Ethiopia with the girls and just like never having really any idea how far you were actually running. (laughs) Like that had to be difficult to get your mind in that place. Like we're just going to run until we're done. Yeah. That's yeah. That's not like my natural tendency to just roll with runs like that. I don't think many people, you know, easily handle that, but it was good. And like, it is something I got used to. Um, and you know, once like, it's so much easier to be frustrated when you have an idea of exactly what you want to do and how it should be done. But when you just kind of relinquish control and know that other people are leading and if they feel good, you're going to go a little bit longer and a little bit harder. And if they don't feel good, you'll have a little bit of a break. Um, and just trust that the days will kind of balance out. Then it works. So you kept in really good shape throughout the trip. You were running a lot of miles, but you kind of like let it ebb and flow like in in times where it didn't make sense to do lots of workouts, you didn't. But then in times where you got with groups where it did make sense, you did. And you got some races under your belt and you came back to the United States like on fire to do big things. So tell us about that. Yeah, I think that year was good for me in so many ways, but one of them was after five years of being a collegiate athlete, um, cause I took a fifth year and was hurt a few seasons, but basically trained and raced year round for five years at a intense level. Um, so then I just had a year of basically like base work, I guess you would say, but, um, you know, throwing in some workouts here and there, but I didn't have a whole, I didn't have much structure. My coach 
I would talk to him regularly and he'd help me kind of fill in some gaps when I'd say like, oh, this group generally does like this and this and they might do this workout this weekend in this long run. But he'd help me kind of navigate through that and just get in enough that, you know, I was baseline fit the whole year, but not overdoing it. And I wasn't really focusing on any races or trying to be in maximal fitness while traveling. Cause that was a hard part too. I, I was averaging a different bed every five days and, you know, staying with other people as basically a full-time tourist, which is super fun, but also extremely exhausting. Oh, I bet. So, yeah. So, um, I took days off when I needed to. And, uh, what, like on my long travel days, I'd take a day off and was really able to just listen to my body and, kind of follow the cues it gave me more than ever before. And I think just stacking on a year of pretty much uninterrupted, but very free and joyful training. Um, I think that did wonders for me when I came back to the U S cause it was, I think like four or five months later when I debuted in the marathon and that wasn't, that wasn't the plan. Like I knew I wanted to run the marathon and be a marathoner if I could, after I didn't know if professional running would be an opportunity, didn't know how good I'd be, but just, you know, that always appealed to me. So when I came back to Houston where my coach was and was training and getting back into workouts and things were just going really well. And I think I was super fresh from not, um, really taxing myself too, too much over the year. Things were just falling into place. And he suggested like, all right, why don't we, why don't we give a shot at 26.2? Like it's not going to be you know, like a huge deal, but you'll get experience at it and we'll kind of stay under the radar and see how it goes. And yeah, it went really well and, um, made me like really made me fall in love with the, the discipline and it hasn't been, hasn't been a smooth journey since then, but it's been fun and ex- exciting and I'm still in it. <laughs> I loved reading your breakdown and recap of your the marathon, like the miles at CIM that day. Oh, thanks. And just the different points on the course that you saw your coach and you saw your mom. And I think it was one point towards the end where you mentioned you were thinking about, oh gosh, Sammy Wangero. And what did you say that he, he did when he's, the late Sammy Wanjir, but what did you say that he did in races that you kind of like honed in on? Yeah, this was like a little tactic that my brother reminded me about my older brother, Matt, who's like always so positive and giving me little words of wisdom and things to think about during races. But, uh, he kind of made like a little symbol with his hands, like, you know, kind of like the okay sign, Mm -hmm. like (laughs) where you kind of pinch your, your thumb and your forefinger, I guess, together. But um, it kind of relaxes you and also, like, roots you in reality, I guess. Like, it just, to me, it kind of reminded me, like, okay, I'm just running. I'm fine. I'm alive. Like, I'm not going to die. This is supposed to be fun. Um, So I think whenever I can, like, enjoy myself, smile a little bit, taking a little bit of the surroundings, not that it has to be, like, you know, a fun run the whole time, but that's when I really do my best when I'm relaxed and, um, enjoy myself a little bit. So before we get on to your marathoning career now, I want to ask you a couple more questions about the trip. I keep going back to the fact that you 
were switching beds like every five days and always staying somewhere new. And my like freak of a self who's obsessed with getting enough sleep is just thinking, oh my gosh, I bet in some places there were like barking dogs and loud this and loud that. And how did, how did you like handle that? (laughs) So one thing, little known thing about me is I am, I have, I've had sleep problems since I was young, like have seen so many sleep doctors and tried all these things and that was my biggest worry going into the trip, honestly, that like I would just not be able to make it out without being like just a total, total wreck. Um, and it by the end of the year, I mean, I was more tired than I've ever been in my whole life, probably <laughs> than I ever will be, because not only is it like sleeping in different environments, but like you said, I didn't have any control over like noise or exactly when I was going to bed, when I was getting up, I was constantly jet lagged, you know, when I was in Scandinavia, for example, it was like sunny 24 hours a day, basically. And so that messed with me. And I was staying with plenty of people who had young kids, and they're not always quiet. And (laughs) (laughs) um, that was one of the biggest challenges for sure was, and and normally, I'm, I'm like a religious daily napper. But when I was traveling, I was often, you know, uh, out and about with the people I was staying with and it just wasn't possible. So it was, it was a struggle at times, but, uh, kind of like the go with the flow style of running. I really had to learn to just like try to not stress too much about being on my own agenda and just think about the fact that I was staying with people who were generous enough to let me shadow them around. And I wasn't really warranted to complain about a nap. So yeah, it was tough. <laughs> you got yourself some good prep for if you ever want to have children and the newborn, oh. in your like sleep deprived from having a newborn. <laughs> yeah, honestly, like night before marathon, you know, people don't sleep. It's that that's the one night that I'm actually relaxed about it because I'm like, okay, there are so many other people who are not sleeping right now, and I fine. This is normal, but nor like on other nights when I'm up at, you know, when I get out of bed at two or something, then it's like kind of panic, like oh. yeah wrecked a morning again but it's all right so talk to me about the food because that's another thing I would have been terrified about because I'm always paranoid about getting an upset stomach when I try new foods or greasy foods or whatever so you kind of just had to go with it and eat what what people were serving you and you had really good experiences oh yeah the food was one of the best parts of the whole trip for sure um I kept a cookbook basically of recipes from my hosts and from different places that I went on my travels. And, um, that was really fun because not only did I get to learn these recipes and, um, I jot down little stories about the context that I ate them in and, you know, where the recipes came from, but it's pretty good tactic. I figured out to bring out my little cookbook and tell my host at a new place like, Oh, so I'm recording all these local specialties and like, favorite recipes of my hosts everywhere I go. Is there anything in particular that, you know, I should learn from you? And so they'd all, you know, pull out their best recipes and feed me and teach me how to make them. And, um, that was a really fun part of my trip. And, um, I, I included a couple of recipes in my book, I guess one per one or two per chapter, but I saved many more that are now in little shutterfly cookbooks that I made for myself with pictures of my hosts and little snippets about all of them. Oh, cute. Well, 
Yeah, that was a smart tactic because people have a sense of pride for for the food that they have in their culture. So they're going to want to give you the best of the best. Yeah, exactly. And fortunately, I think this is I just got super lucky. I didn't have any stomach problems, like didn't get sick, never, never ate. Any, I mean, I I tried everything offered to me besides raw meat in Ethiopia because mm-hmm. I've just heard horror stories about people who just don't recover if if. You know, it's not sanitary, but, um, yeah, I was very adventuresome and that was one of the highlights of traveling was just totally embracing the food culture in all these different places. I am also a nervous flyer. Did you have any scary, uh, travel experiences? Um, I had a lot of close calls. I think that's pretty inevitable. Um, I guess the, the scariest was... When I was, I think I was supposed to be going to New Zealand. I can't remember exactly. I was going from maybe Japan to New Zealand or something or vice versa. And when I got to the airport, they told me that my, that I actually had to, the visa that I thought was going to work actually wasn't going to work. And they were going to have to reroute me to Hawaii. And I was going to have to buy a ticket to Hawaii and stay there for a certain number of days and then go and continue with my journey. And I was just like, but I can't do that. I, I like don't have the money to do that. <laughs> I must go. And I somehow finagled my way into getting on that plane. But um, nothing major that prevented me from carrying it out. So, yeah. You, I mean, you just hop on a plane and go to country to country. And you just, I mean, do you just sit down and you don't have a fear of any of anything? And you're just like, all right, here I go. I'm going to Japan. I'm going to Finland. Uh, I always made a plan for what I was going to do exactly when I got off the plane. And tried to have some contact to... I felt like I could kind of rely on if I needed. And several times when I got off the plane, the person who I'd been communicating with who was kind of helping me um, would meet me at the airport or the train station or whatever and help me get to where I was going or, you know, bring me to their house if I was staying with them. So, um, yeah, I never I mean, I tried to avoid showing up somewhere without any idea of where I was going and also tried to avoid landing somewhere for the first time at night. Oh, yeah. Yeah, that would be scary. Yeah, but fortunately, it worked out. And um, the, like the I guess one of the scarier moments, which is funny now to think about, but um, I didn't have a plan for what I was going to do when I got to Rome, which was just kind of an interim spot that I was going to fly out of to go to Ethiopia and I had a couple days there. And on my train ride there, I got confirmation from this guy, Alessio, who all I knew about him was was that he worked for the Rome Marathon and that he was a man. <laughs> Got confirmation that I could crash on his couch with his, he had like two male roommates. That was literally all I knew. And so I was like, well, I mean, I don't really have time to verify anything about you, but he said he was, he'd meet me when I arrived. So I was kind of like, okay, hey, guess I'm going for it. Um, he ended up being one of the coolest people I met on my whole trip. And I'm now, he now works for the IAAF. So I've, gotten to see him in several different races and it was it just ended up working out so well I never would have expected that so it's probably one of those things where you kind of just had to go with your gut like when you met him like if something fell off you would have just had to be like I gotta go do something else yeah exactly and that was one of the best pieces of advice I got before I left someone who had done this fellowship like a few years before said, you know, you really can't prepare for everything. And 
you're not going to have anyone telling you like, this is right. This is wrong. This is sketchy or not. So you just have to trust your gut. And if you feel like there's a situation that's risky, like get out of it. Yeah. (laughs) And that it was good advice. It really, I mean, I think came in handy a few times, but fortunately didn't have anything major that um, was like a safety or security threat. So the last thing I'll ask you about the trip before we talk about marathoning uh, is you had the opportunity to meet people like Usain Bolt and I'm going to say his name wrong, but Haley, say his name, Gabrisolasi. Yeah. Yep. You got it. Haley Gabrisolasi. Is that how you say it? Yeah. Haley (laughs) Gabrisolasi. Once the world record holder in the marathon, very, very famous uh, runner, if those listening have never heard of him, um, and a, very much a celebrity uh, in Ethiopia. So tell us about meeting people like that and what you were most surprised about. Yeah, that was really cool. And then none, none of those like kind of celebrities that I met were anything that I sought out, which I thought was pretty cool. They were all somehow arranged by like a host or a friend or just kind of um, by chance. And like I said before, I think that running celebrities are pretty low-key and grounded and genuine, genuinely good people. I don't think you'd find that in a lot of professional sports. And probably some of it has to do with, like, salary discrepancy, honestly. <laughs> but, but um, yeah, it was cool. It was really cool to meet those people and um, get a, a little bit different glimpse into where they come from and their running cultures that I wouldn't have gotten from just purely recreational runners. Was Usain Bolt a giant? Total giant. Bigger <laughs> than bigger than you would even imagine. <laughs> and was he as, as uh, charismatic and loud and vibrant as you see him on TV? Yeah, maybe a little more subdued, but definitely playful and fun. And like, you know, he was cracking jokes and wasn't taking himself too seriously. So I think, I think what you see on TV is pretty much authentic Bolt. So now do you feel like you have this lifelong love for travel? Oh, like even more than that. Yeah. (laughs) I'm constantly thinking about where I can go and what I can do and what kind of travel business I can start. And, uh, just, yeah, it's cool. And I mean, it's just, it's just fun. i I feel like every day or every other day, at least I'm talking to someone for my trip for one reason or another. And, um, and that was another really cool part of writing the book was that I got to reach out to all these people and ask them like, Hey, what was the name of that trail we ran on again? And I would go through my travel journals and have to email people like, Oh my gosh, can you believe this? And, um, just made some really cool life on friends. Some of which I think, I hope, are coming to my wedding this fall, which will be really fun. Yeah. So you're getting married in September. Yeah. Does your fiance like to travel? Actually, he just, um, so he also ran at Rice, so he's a runner, but he just went to Europe for the first time to Valencia when I was racing World Half Champs. Oh, cool. And and it's funny because on the way home, like I knew he was going to love traveling because he's adventuresome and loves food and he's kind of up for anything. And on the way home, he had already downloaded all these language apps. And now I think he's up to like 45 days. That's how long we've been home from Spain. But he's up to 45 days of like 
his French language study because we're going to go to France for our honeymoon and he is all about it. Oh, that's so cool. So you guys were dating before you went on the trip then? Uh, it's, it's a little bit murky before because okay. <laughs> he asked me out for the first time. Um, it was like the night before he was going home for summer break and I was, I was set to run in the Olympic trials like two weeks later and then leave for my trip two weeks after that. So terrible timing, but enough to like really forge a strong connection and, you know, have hope that maybe when I came back and moved back to Houston, if I did that, you know, we could be a good fit. So we kept in touch, but we weren't like, we weren't like dating when, when I was traveling. Oh, he was thinking about you the whole time though. You know he was. <laughs> um, I, w- I was wondering that as I was reading the book. And I knew that, you know, I was just thinking, because I thought you mentioned at one point the boy back home or something. But yeah, 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 yeah. I wondered if this was a thing before. And I was thinking how difficult that would be because uh, one thing we didn't mention about the trip was you weren't, you didn't have a smartphone with you, right? I didn't, I just, I mean, I never owned a smartphone until I came back, but I didn't, all I had was like this tiny little go phone, (laughs) nothing close to a smartphone that was basically for emergencies. Like if I ever just totally could not find where I was going or anything like that. So it was basically off the whole year. Um, I think I used it a couple times for exactly the purpose of like finding someone when I was lost or something, but it's not like I was like keeping in touch with people or, and I mean, I traveled with a, not a laptop, but I had a, um, iPad. Mm. And so I could email and Skype, but I purposely did not want to be tethered to people back home like too much. And I was glad I wasn't in a serious relationship. I didn't want to be when I was traveling. I just thought it would be, it would take away from the experience. And, um, I think that it probably would have been different had I, had I done things differently. Yeah, did you completely disconnect from social media? Well, I didn't have Instagram at all before I left. Um, Twitter, no. Yeah, I guess. I mean, I had Facebook. That was about it. And sadly, I got hacked. And I'm I'm not really a Facebook user anymore. But I got hacked last year and lost like basically all of my travel connections and pictures and all that. That was a bummer. But. yeah, I'm glad also I didn't have the social media stuff to be worried about just because I think people focus too much on like portraying sure. travel well. And it, it, I think there's definitely a give and take with like the experience at that point. Oh, for sure. I know I said something about social media and, and all your journey and my husband was like, people that do stuff like that aren't that invested in social media. <laughs> Meaning like you were more invested in your experience than sharing your experience on social media. Because I was thinking, oh my gosh, I would have been like posting a picture on Instagram every single new country and, you know, all this stuff. Yeah. And like now I guess it'd probably be a little different because I'm way more, well, I mean, I have, (laughs) I'm on social media now, but, um, but yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm really thankful that I wasn't and that 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 wasn't even like a consideration so much. Yeah. So you're getting married in September. Uh, you mentioned you ran in the 2012 trials, you ran uh, steeple in the 2012 trials and your, you know, your marathon career, your marathoning career is kind of taking off now. Tell us about 
your goals with the marathon. We mentioned in 2013, you came out and you ran that insane debut of 2.30, but you kind of said you've had, it hasn't, it has been a little rocky since then. So kind of, can you walk us through that a little bit? Yeah, sure. So, um, I've now run six marathons and had really good buildups for a lot of them. I've had a little bit of bad luck, just a little bit of races that I haven't put it together in. Um, but I think I've had five, like very warm to hot marathons, even like London this year, normally is perfect conditions. And we are finishing in the seventies and Houston full marathon last year is normally great conditions. And it was like, 60s, 70s with 100% humidity and just in LA, I ran LA twice. That was, you know, same 70s, 80s and um, some things that I didn't have control over and some things that just for whatever reason, uh, things just didn't click so much on race day. So um, I, I mean, identify as a marathoner, but I have not run faster than my debut yet. And I know it's within me and um, I, I know it'll happen and hopefully sooner rather than later. I feel like I've been on the brink for quite some time, but um, I think that's part of the sport. You know, you just nothing. You're you're really not entitled to anything, even if you have like a great buildup or a really great few races before anything like that. Like there's just so many variables with the marathon and it's, it's hard to nail at the exact right time. And Um, so I'm, I'm working on that and excited to keep going at it and, you know, hopefully make a good, really good showing at the 2020 trials and hopefully same, even better at the 2024 trials. And, you know, at the same time, like running really well is important, but also doing it the right way and, you know, making good friendships and seeing the world and all that through the sport is just as important to me. So that part, that part's going well. That part, um, I will continue to focus on too. So you're 29. So you have like a solid give or take 10 years of really competitive running left in you. So do you feel like, and are you excited that your best years are ahead of you? Yeah. And thank you. I appreciate the optimism. Cause I, it is true. Like if you look at the best female marathoners, they peak in their mid thirties and some of them in their late thirties and I, yeah, that gives me a lot of hope and makes me really excited because hopefully that's, you know, another 15 to 20 marathons left to go at it. And like, I know, I know some of those won't be great, but I know that things will come together and, uh, all my work and efforts and dreams and everything will be rewarded in some of them. So yeah, it's a good perspective. Thanks. And you're also doing like part-time work and other things. What, what all are you doing right now? Well, besides the wedding planning, (laughs) that's a big part-time job. Yeah. And house hunting, another kind of part-time job. Um, totally. Yeah. So I'm working part-time at this place in Boulder called Black Ops Sports and I'm doing, my role is as a writer and communicator, um, and it's a, it's a really cool place. It's hard to describe unless you come see it. So if you're in Boulder, you'll have to come out and see it. But it's a venture capital firm for sports tech products. Um, but it's more than that. It's a creative collective of artists, athletes, entrepreneurs, um, physical therapists, founders, 
people who are just involved in sports from an entrepreneurial side. And um, I'm just surrounded by really cool, driven, athletic people for, you know, half of my day, most days of the week. That and is it's, so it's, cool. Yeah, yeah. It's it's important to me to have something else that I enjoy doing and that is, you know, something to work towards and kind of consume part of my days that's not just about me and just about running. Because um, to me, that can get a little overwhelming and uh, it has diminishing returns. Not Not for everyone, but for me. And so, yeah, I'm just thankful, really thankful to have a boss and coworkers that support my running schedule and are always looking up results and, um, you know, letting me come in late when I have long workouts and all everything like that. So, yeah, I mean, cause you're still training very competitively. Like you said, you just ran London, didn't have the race you necessarily hoped it would be, but I mean, you were training very hard and you ran the Houston half and one eleven had a good race there. So you're, you're really balancing both. I mean, you're doing both. You're training at an elite level and you're working. Um, and it sounds like you're finding a lot of joy in that. Yeah, yeah, definitely. I mean, I'd say like, I think the, the amount of running that I'm doing could be full time and is for a lot of people, you know, up to 120 miles a week and uh, just all the extra stuff that goes along with it. But as I said before, I think balance is huge and it's, really hard to find the right balance. It's easy to get a little overcommitted. But for me, I think having something that's not specifically running related is, is better just for everything. Does your fiance, is he running competitively or what does he do? Yeah. So he works full time as an engineer in Boulder, but, um, he basically does everything with me and, uh, he'll race a little bit this summer on his own, like probably, 5k mile. He was a steeplechaser and 10k runner in college, but he's been a really fabulous pacer for some of my marathon buildups and has paced me in a couple marathons. So, um, it's really nice when that works out, but I also support his own running too. Yeah. So does he, like, if he trained as competitively as you, is he fast? Does he run faster than you? Oh, for sure. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Just like, yeah, like com- just me versus him, him every time in every distance. <laughs> well, Becky, I'm excited for the the future of your running. And tell us again what the company you work for is called, because I think it sounds like a really cool company. It is really cool. It's called Black Lab Sports. Black Lab Sports. Okay, I'm going to look them up. Do they have a podcast or anything? You know, they don't, but they actually finished... They're, they're in the very final stages of building out a media lab as well as a neuroscience lab. And um, I think podcasts will be on the horizon. So I'll, I'll send you a link when that happens if you're interested. Oh, good. For sure. Yes, definitely. I'm always looking for new podcasts to listen to. So that would be exciting. Yeah. So I always wrap up with some end of the podcast questions. And the first one is if you... Uh, what is something professionally or personally that you haven't done yet that you'd like to do? I would like to break 2.30 for the marathon and hopefully crush the 2.30 barrier. Nice. It's going to happen for sure. I have no doubt that you will do that. Mm, thank you. If you had one message to send to the world, what would it be? I would send the message that there are infinite ways to get where you want to be going and trying and experimenting and learning from other people is the way to do it rather than 
mapping out a very detailed plan and thinking you have to follow it to a T in order for it to happen because it's not realistic and it's also not fun. Genius. That's so good. Thank you. <laughs> you didn't even need to be prepped on these. You just you just have them in your back pocket. Oh, I don't know. What What's something you're loving right now in life? In life. I'm doing a lot of really fun things right now. Like what are things? Really, oh, well, one thing. Um, so I'm doing calligraphy on my envelopes for my wedding invitations. And I'm really loving learning different styles and um, just kind of messing around with that. Ooh, calligraphy. You could have your own little Etsy shop where you make cute little witty signs. Yeah. You know, I've been tempted, but I'm just afraid it would it would like get out of control too fast because I'd be <laughs> a little too ambitious and you know how that happens. Yes. You yeah, you'd be having to like slow the orders down. You can only do so many things, Becky. Yeah, or in the off season. I wish it is not very much at all. Right. What's uh what's the best most recent book you've read? I recently finished Dean Caster's book and loved it. It was so well written and I think also had like so much practical takeaways for runners of every level. We have a, you should join. We have a book club with this podcast and uh, we just finished that book. I was, no, we're rereading that book this month, but I was finishing your book first. You know what I'll do? I'll put your book for our June pick. Oh, cool. Yeah. You know what? You should join our podcast, my Facebook group, because then uh, if I pick it for the June book club, uh, you can like chime in on on things and people can like actually ask you questions. Not that you have time for that, yeah. but that would be so cool. I'd love to. Only thing is my Facebook was hacked, but I could use my fiance's Facebook. And, oh, yeah. Sure. Um, sure. Yeah, I would be I would love to be involved. So, yeah, let's talk about that. What's his what's his name? Will. Fur. OK, so. You, you'll be commenting as Will. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> this is actually Becky Wade, but she's Will for, th- for today. Yeah. Um, yeah. Well, let's talk about that. We'll connect about that. But yeah, the group is reading uh, Dina's book right now. We just uh, finished 10% Happier by Dan Harris. Oh, I read that one too. I read his like follow-up recently. Oh, did he have a follow-up book? Um, yes. I can't remember what it's called. It's, it's another short, like pretty easy read, but yeah. I liked it. All right. Well, Becky, this was so fun. And uh, I feel like, you know, before this conversation, I I got to know you quite a bit in reading your book. And uh, one thing I didn't talk to you about was just writing. I mean, writing a book is a big undertaking. So congratulations for, for doing that and taking that on and getting it published. And I hope that being on this podcast can help get it in the hands of even more people because it's so good. Thank you. Thank you so much. I really appreciate that. Well, have a great uh, rest of the night and good luck with the wedding planning. Thank you. Yeah, it was really nice chatting and I really liked all of your questions. So keep it <laughs> up. Thank you. We'll talk soon. Okay, Becky? Good. Thanks. Bye. Bye. All right, everybody. Thanks so much for joining us today. And don't forget, join the Facebook group. I'll have another podcast with Lindsay Hyde group because we're going to be doing some fun stuff over there. And Dina Castor is doing a Q&A with us this coming Thursday, May 31st at 4.30 p.m. Eastern time. So be there. Put that on your calendars, guys. Thank you, Lily Trotters, for supporting this episode of the podcast. Go to lilytrotters.com and use the code ANOTHER for 25% off your order. 
And big thanks to Four Sigmatic for supporting the podcast. Go to foursigmatic.com slash another and use the code another for 15% off your order. All right, guys, have a great Friday. Have a wonderful weekend. And as always, I will see you next Friday.